0: You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for today's show where I chat with Dr. Michael Gervais. Michael Gervais is a high performance psychologist. He's also the co-founder of a company called Compete to Create. He also has an amazing podcast called Finding Mastery. And he works with some of the top performers in the world. So he works with the Seattle Seahawks. He works with NBA players, Olympians, military personnel, and all kinds of corporate leaders. He actually works with Microsoft in a number of ways. So Gervais has developed clarity for the tools that allow people to thrive under pressure. He's a published, peer-reviewed author and a nationally recognized speaker on issues related to high performance. And if you play in the high performance space like I do, Dr. Gervais is really one of the leading experts in our field, and his podcast is just filled with wisdom and gems on how to intentionally set your mind to be your best. So he's the perfect guest for this podcast, and I can't tell you how excited I am to share him with all of you. So Dr. Gervais is going to talk about his journey into sports psychology, his upbringing, his philosophy, how he thinks about sports psychology, and he's going to bring all of that to you. So I'm so excited to share him with you. And what I do, if you could share it with the world, I know there's a lot of people in the sports psychology world that are going to listen to this. Let's get it out to some of our peers. Uh, for those of you in the business world, this conversation will be great for you as you're trying to achieve high performance. And certainly in the sport world, too, uh, this will very much resonate with you and your friends and your community so let's share it on facebook twitter linkedin wherever it is at your social uh share it there and then also if you could write us a review on itunes it really does help us out lastly we have a patreon homepage. you can go over there backslash intentional performers and if you could throw us five dollars ten dollars a month uh, we really do appreciate it. it really does make a difference as we continue to build this podcast out. But without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Dr. Michael Gervais. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We are in Hermosa Beach, and this morning I got to wake up and see the sunrise. It helped that I had East Coast time, so I was up early. And uh, what a way to start your day, and what a nice little view you've got on of the beach and Hermosa is a cool town i've never been here before so
0: it's good living here so thanks thanks for coming out Uh, happy to do this with you
1: yeah i'm excited to be here too i wanted to start by just giving people a little bit of a perspective on your sports psychology journey or your performance psychology journey however you see it i know a lot of people that are going to listen to this are in that community uh, so i want to serve them a little bit so give us some perspective on how you got introduced to sports psychology when that was why you were interested in it, and all that good stuff.
0: Mm. Where do you want me to start? You want me to go way back, or do you want me to start with something like relatively new?
1: I want you to go way back.
0: Yeah, it's okay. So the like the the first beginnings of me becoming aware that there's an influence in the mind and how we do things was with my one of my first sports, which was surfing. And there's two types of surfing: free surfing and competitive surfing. And during free surfing, it was no problems like it was great. It was exciting. It was hard. It was wonderful. There was all types of embedded risk and challenge and that was great. Then I was a completely different person under competitive conditions. I, I don't know if something changed. I didn't know what changed.
1: How old were you when you realized
0: this, this was like around 15 years old where I was in a competition and I I didn't like it. <laughs> I love surfing, but didn't like competing. And it wasn't until a adult competitor, it was only three people out in the ocean, early in the morning, beautiful conditions, like glassy, surf was about head high, just a fun, playful um, experience. And what's wonderful about competitive surfing is that there's there's nobody out in the water but you and the other two or three people in your heat. And normally, there's it's just littered with people, right? There's the, the beach is just full of, of folks. So it should be great. <laughs> like, it should... But it wasn't. And I don't know if you've ever had the feeling where it feels like you're disconnected to your body. Not in some kind of crazy you know, way, but like it, the, my body just didn't feel normal. My legs felt different. My, butt, my, my feet felt different. My arms felt different. My whole body was different because, come to look back, <laughs> my mind was different. I was thinking about it differently. So I'm out in the water feeling just like, what am I doing? That's a thought, I know. But the feeling was anxiousness. And the thought was, what am I doing? Like, why am I even bothering with this? I, I'm, I'm miserable. And a competitor paddled by me and he says, Gervais, now he sees me surf all the time. And he says, Gervais, you got to stop worrying about what could go wrong. And I thought, how does he know what I'm thinking? I mean, that's all I was doing. I was, what happens if I do this? What if I if I catch a rail? If I don't get out of this heat? And I made it too, way too big of a deal in my own 15-year-old mind. And so like a good competitor, he paddles off and I'm sitting there by myself and I said, okay, well, he's right. I should stop worrying about what could go wrong. He didn't tell me what to do. (laughs) And uh, I just had this little moment in this, again, this 15 year old mind where I said, "Well, let me start thinking about what could go well, what could go right. And that was the uh, initial flip for me. And I just sat out in the back and I thought about what could go well. And it It's not like that was this lightning bolt moment. I think sometimes in retrospect, it might seem that way as I'm telling the story, but it was a, it was an important moment for me to say, you know what, there's something about my mind.
1: What were you like as a 15 year old kid outside of the
0: water? Yeah. Happy go lucky, pretty, you know, whatever. I, am I've always been, I think a little bit off access, you know, I I really like uh, pushing on the edges of whatever it is and Um, yeah, I think that life was good for me. It wasn't like there was anything wrong that was proceeding or creating this anxious mind I had, but, um, it, I just couldn't sort it out when the lights turned on and that's where it started for me.
1: And how did that realization impact you away from surfing?
0: You know, actually, I, I, I actually didn't hear what you just said because I was still I was thinking about something else. So let hold on a minute. Well, how
1: about this? Tell me what you were thinking. About. Yeah,
0: for sure. I was going to say it, is that, you know, if one of my mentors were listening right now, what's up, Gary? He would say, "Happy go lucky." What are you? Are you crazy? Like. Mike, you're so freaking intense. Like, come on. And so I have this image of myself with this kid bopping around high school and whatever, like not going to classes, really. Class school was hard for me. High school was hard. And it wasn't hard because academically it was challenging. It was much more about a social event that um, was going to lead to something fun outside of school, meaning surfing with the guys.
1: When you say not really going to school, so are you skipping school to go surf?
0: Yeah, I don't want to sound like I'm a hoodlum or by any means, but I did everything that you possibly could inside the lines to um, minimize the amount of time I was in school. And it sounds like that, that's, I don't know, some sort of Machiavellian trick that I was doing, but I, I, I wasn't interested in it at all at that point. And th- leading up to this place where my parents was in my living or kitchen one, one morning, no, it was afternoon, it was sun out, so It must've been one afternoon. And my mom pulls me aside and she says, Hey, listen, Mike, we tried. We tried our best to help you navigate through high school. And, um, I got a PSA on my PSAT. I got a zero because I went surfing on my SAT. I got a zero because I went surfing. So my interest exams were, um, (laughs) not going to get me into college. (laughs) So they said that we tried. You've got two options, either get a job and get out or go to community college. And I, I piped up, like, I'm not going to community college. Like who goes to community? Like I'll never get out of there. And why why would I go to community college? Come to find out, they kind of knew that. So there was another school that they had lined up for me, which was, it was called Marymount college. And, um, that ended up being a decision that I made to go to Marymount college, which is a private small school two year school, but it looked overlooked a surf spot that I loved. So I knew I had this model in my head that I could go surfing and go to school, kind of. So I was just going to extend my high like, school career a little bit. and But I got tricked. <laughs> I got, because that's where it all it, it, everything changed for me there. And there was three men there in particular that I'm incredibly grateful for.
1: Can you tell us about those three men?
0: Yeah. It was a philosopher, a psychologist, and a theologian. And we walked into a bar. <laughs> Joking. But it was. It was Dr. Cusio, Zenka, and Perkins. And the three of them were buddies. And there was this little community that they built with each other and i can only imagine i don't know the extent of their friendship but from a 19 what am i 18 at that point 18 year old kid it looked like those three guys were kind of switched on they think about kind of the same things you know religion spiritual conversations philosophical conversations and the mystery of the mind and so they i feel like they saw me coming they wrapped their arms around me they're like hey kid like there's some cool stuff that we're into you might be into it too Meanwhile, I, to get into that school, I tested into remedial math and remedial English, (laughs) not because I didn't like, not because I couldn't understand it. I just didn't study. I didn't, I didn't know my stuff from high school, but I wanted to continue surfing. (laughs) So I did what it took to get into the school to be able to surf and go to school. Then six weeks in, there was these three guys. Eventually I met these three professors.
1: Very cool. You said something that I want to go back on, which is, I remember the sun was shining, so it had to have been afternoon when you were talking to your parents, or they were sort of laying the law down and giving you these options. Your ability to go to that place and see the sun in that moment that you just did, where does that come from?
0: The ability to recall with detail. Yeah. I love, the, I love thinking and musing and using imagination, so I think that it's a well. I think I know that imagination is a skill and you would know that as well. Like you can teach it, you can train it, you can cultivate it. And the way it makes sense for me is that our mind works in pictures. And if that's the case, I want to have the most vivid pictures and I want to be great yet using my mind and having vividness and clarity about my thoughts that create vivid and clear images. And so when I think back or think forward, I want to have uh, as much vividness as I can. So you know, that, that's where that comes from. I, I love thinking forward about the possibilities that could happen. And I see it as an adventure. And if I'm going to go on this adventure and I like the ape razor's edge and I like to push on boundaries, I've got to know where the cliffs are. And so I know how to dangle my feet appropriately. So that, that to me is almost like um, a life preserving and life adventure mechanism that I use.
1: Got it. So the descriptions and being very detail oriented so you can see it. And if you can see it, then you can figure out maybe the journey to get there.
0: Yeah, and I want to be really careful on that thought because it's not you you know this, right? Like if you see it it's going to happen bullshit on that. That's not how it works. It is important, but I'll also say, let me let me slow down. It is important to be able to have a sense of the direction you want to go. Okay, so that's like a vague picture, right? I think if you spend time thinking about details of it, it becomes more crystallized. That's cool. But I also got to say that there's some science and evidence around that. And that evidence is usually uh, articulated around goal setting. There is some stuff around setting visions in life. And I want to make sure that you and I are going to talk about, if I'm going to talk about like my life experiences, there's no science of that. It's an N of one, one person trying to figure shit out. On the other side though, where there is science and we get to stand on the shoulders of great scientists in the field of sport and performance psychology that I'm not convinced that if you don't have a vision, you're going to suffer. That, that to me, is not it's not been my experience, and I can't find research that would hold it up. So let me be more clear if I can is that having a vision and clarity of where you want to go, I think it's a great exercise. I think it's really cool. If you don't have one, no problems. For a long time, I didn't have one. I, I never thought that I was going to be doing exactly what I'm doing today. But I think about how I want to live. I think about the experiences that, I um, don't know, sorry, how I want to experience experiences. And that has led me to the life I have today. And I'm not saying it's extraordinary. It's just like there's, these, um, uh, I don't know, uh, ribbons on trees. And they're not like this, this long, big, huge oak tree in the future that I'm trying to get to, <laughs> but I find these little ribbons on these trees. I'm like, that's a good ribbon. Let me, let me see what's under this tree. And then I look up eventually and it's like, Oh, there's another ribbon over there. So it's not this grand design thing. Uh, I have great respect for people that have grand designs. Elon Musk fascinated by what he's doing, <laughs> you know, Magellan fascinated by what he did. So
1: you did something that you often do for those that listen to your podcast. You speed up and then you catch yourself. And then you like almost hit the rewind button. And I hear you do this with your guests, which is, oh, no, no, let me re- reword that. Or let me reframe that because that's not exactly what I intended. Where did you learn how to do that? How conscious are you of hitting the re- rewind button or slowing down?
0: It's funny. When I listen to my podcast, when I re-listen to like try to get better. I'm like, why am I talking so slowly? (laughs) So when I listen to it back, it sounds really slow. And I get feedback that I will talk quickly. So I purposely do. If there's a pause, like I just had right now, that I'm looking for the right word, the most precise, concise, articulate way that I can try to express the thing that's inside me. And there's a musician, Cat Stevens, which most people are probably, hopefully, very familiar with. And he's got a line that sticks with me. And it's it's so true. And it just, it bounces around inside me often is, and here's a line. I think, uh, no, um, here's a line. I listen to my words and I fall far below. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's not even it. I listen to my words and they fall far below. And that's what it feels like for me. So trying to find the right words is, I don't know, it's like a, this competitive process, internal competitive process to try to find just the right way to express what is hard to express, which are thoughts. They're invisible. It's hard to do the thing that you and I are doing right now at a level of precision. And so that, that's it. So I don't know if I'm aware of it or not, but I know actively most of my day, I'm looking for the most precise way to articulate something that I find to be beautiful and uh, nuanced and layered. And um, I just love it, which is the mind. i flat out (laughs) love how the mind and the body and craft, all three of those work together in rugged and hostile environments.
1: Very cool. I want to go back a little bit because you explain this love, this deep passion you have for surfing, so much so that it is the top priority, at least it seems like, for 15-year-old you, 16-year-old you, so much so that you know, the college that you go to works because it has a surfing option. Do you remember the first time you got on a board, what that was like? Um, and if you could just paint that picture for us, I'm curious about it.
0: Yeah. There's three parts to the story and I, it's a great question. And I don't think in any recent, I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that question. So cool. Thank you. Um and I'm also thinking right now, like, I'm, I've got this other narrative in my head, like, why are you talking so much about yourself, Mike? Like Because you're on my podcast. Yeah, I know. So, okay. <laughs> um, All right. So first time I remember it was around a group of guys and that was like a peer group and they were going to take me surfing for the first time. And I was scared. I was nervous. Where are you? Here, you know, in Southern California. Yeah. Um, Redondo Beach is where the kind of the first time it was a burnout beach was the name of it. and There's a name. There's a reason that there's a name for burnout. And <clears throat> so there I am, and I've got this board. I remember my arms sh- uh, shaking just a little bit, my my legs shaking just a little bit. And a surfboard is uh, fiberglass, so it's kind of hard, kind of soft, but it's got these three fins that come out the back that are sh- sharp enough to. Um, Definitely give you some lacerations, and the surf was way too big. <laughs> like it's kind of like the classic um, example: like your buddies take you up to a ski hill, and they push off a of black diamond. That's what this moment was. Looking back, no lessons, no guidance. They just grabbed their boards and jumped out, and I tried to figure out what they were doing by just watching. Little, literally, though I'm shaking, and the reason I'm shaking is because I don't know what I can swim. I've got a sense of. Um, industriousness about myself and I can figure things out, but this is a brand new uh, environment and I'm loving it. So there's the, like the the sickness about it is I'm shaking, I'm nervous and I love the thought that I'm going to go do something that is right at the edge. And I'm a young kid at this point. And so I jump on my board. It's cold because the temperature here in the water at that time was cold. It was like 64 degrees probably. So that adds a different level of chill and uh, I just remember being out, finally getting out back. And so you got to paddle through, which paddling on a surfboard alone is challenging. I'm going to, they didn't give me a proper learner board. It was a small little surfboard that was in, you know, older brothers, uh, not my older, but one of their older brothers leftovers. And I finally got through the surf. I'm exhausted because of small muscles I've never used before are being taxed and used. And I'm sitting out the back, trying to do everything I can to sit. And um, I watched what the guys were doing. And they were turning around and paddling into a wave. And that took probably, I don't know, 15, 10, 15 attempts to try to get that down and time it and everything. And finally, I found, I caught one. And it sounds... um, Hold on,
1: 10, 15 attempts. Any idea what your mindset was like as you were, quote unquote, failing?
0: Yeah, I was like... (sighs) I'm thinking, because it was a bunch of stuff. It was like a frustration because I really like this dedicated mind that I have. Like when I want to do something, I really want to do it. So I'm frustrated that, that I'm not able to do it. And they all said that, you know, like, dude, you're not standing up. Forget about it. And like today, like give yourself some time. So I was frustrated. And then I was scared because there's like, you you can get hurt. It's not like surfing is dangerous unless you're surfing over your head, meaning, I was over my head, right? It wasn't big for the, for those, those guys because they were skilled. And so I was scared, I was nervous, and I was frustrated. And I remember looking back now that the frustration was the better advocate for me to be better at that moment. And so coming full circle, and I'll go back to the story in a second. If there's three minds that we can be in, we can be fully present and poised, right? We, that's one mind that we can get to. Or we can have another mind, which is we're scared and nervous. Or we can have a third mind, which is we're angry and frustrated and a little pissed off. Which mind, if you can't get to the poised mind, which mind is better? Well, my experience tells me that a pissed off, angry, aggressive mind is way better than a scared mind. And so as I'm telling you the story, this is probably where it comes from for me. Is I remember in that moment, like saying, you know, F it. And um, put myself right on the edge of hesitation. So there's a space between hesitation and commitment. And put myself right in that space. And that's when it happens. And you've got to be on the edge for really amazing things that happen. That's what the edge of the envelope is about. That that place where the greatest power is at state er, as at a crossroad or a nexus with being out of control. And that's where cars travel the fastest. That's where uh, airplanes travel the fastest. Anything that pushes on the edge of the envelope. So there it is in, you know, a 15 year old mind, not knowing any of the stuff I just talked about, but knowing that if I'm scared, it's probably not going to work out well. And so I got to figure out how to not do that. And so I just got a little more aggressive, more pissed. And
1: anger, what did you do with it in that moment?
0: Um, it, I feel just It's like, it's just a different energy, right? It's just like, it make it, at some level, it makes you try harder in the short run. So I'm digging deeper as I'm paddling. I'm getting thrashed more often, but I'm, I've got this aggressive, pissed off tone about it. it. By the way, that's not fun. There's no joy in that. But that's not always the case, you know, as a, as a young, very patchy mental software kid. Like when I look back at it now, I go, yeah, that's, that's work, you know, but when I work at that level now, I'm not using anger. Like that, that is—it's really toxic, and people can get better through some pissed-offness, but there is a cost to it, and and there's a constriction that comes with it that is becomes in some levels a, a golden handcuffs and golden cages.
1: You use the term the edge a lot, and you just used it at the edge of the envelope. Um, I've read the right stuff where they talk about the edge of the envelope over and over again. Um, is that where that comes from for you or where does the edge of the envelope and how do you think about the edge of
0: the envelope? Well, I, you know, I've enjoyed the, the right stuff movie for sure. That's not where it came from for me, where it came from was figuring out the, there's an edge to my knowledge. There's an edge to my abilities. There's an edge to what I understand and don't understand. And so the only way that I have figured out how to get better and grow is get to the edge. And then I spent, so that's action sports in general. And so here's, here's, I, when I grew up, I did not play or appreciate playing traditional stick and ball sports. I, I, it wasn't my thing. I didn't fit right. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I do. Older or younger? Younger. Okay. Yeah. And I, but I didn't fit in those systems. I don't, looking back, it's because I didn't like being told that I was not good enough or wasn't good enough or whatever. Looking back, like I was sensitive to that in some kind of way. So I went in one, I'm better suited to be an adventurer than a soccer player. And I'm not an adventurer. I wish I was more of an adventurer, but I love that approach towards life and and, um, and uh, crafts. So the edge is about pushing to the edge. And that's really what I think I've learned the most of being a novice, very novice action sport athlete um, participant. And the pros that I'm fortunate enough to spend time with in action sports, the elite of you know the best in the world, the tip of the arrow folks they the whole ecosystem of adventure sports is progression that's what it's about pushing right to the edge on on a consistent basis that you change your understanding of what's possible for you, and when that happens, you change the game for others as well and so that I love
1: I want to talk about the tip of the arrow for a second so in my work in my studies or research or whatever you want to call it when you're obsessed with this stuff you're just constantly at least for me i'm constantly reading articles watching videos trying to learn from those people that are at the tip of the arrow because there aren't that many of them and so if you really do a deep dive you can start to see some correlations one of the things i've noticed is a high degree of neuroticism um, and also not for everybody um, but there's also narcissism that lives at that tip of the arrow Can you talk about neuroticism and narcissism? And by the way, I understand there are psychological disorders and those are massive words. Um, But when you are around some of these top performers, can you talk about any of those sort of traits that you see?
0: Yes. Uh, Neuroticism is like this highly emotionally charged inner turmoil, right? Where people are neurotic. Okay. And then narcissism is in the most pedestrian way to think about it, it's the inability to separate yourself from other people. So if I'm a narcissist, then it's, then, and you're wearing a shirt that I don't approve of, I'm gonna make you feel really bad, right? Because you're representing me in a bad way. That's great, it's great. Both of those are levels of crazy, okay? And I, I say that word with a little bit of fun in it, but at the same time, like, it's just so bizarre that it, it the people that live around them feel crazy. And that's where I think that term comes from is when you live with a narcissist or a neurotic person, or you work with them, you end up feeling crazy Hmm. because it's different. It's really different. Okay. So now, now let's just take that into pro sport when to be the best in the world, to work that hard, to be that dedicated to something, it comes from somewhere. And then the question is begged: Does it come from a place of beauty of inner peace? Does it come from a place of, You know, joy and happiness, or does it come from something that's a little bit edgy and crazy? And when I say crazy, I mean, neurotic, narcissistic, obsessive. And my experience has been, there's more of that than there is of deep joy, contentment and peace. doesn't have to be. And at some point it can change and shift for the true clinical folk. That is a narcissist, narcissist NPD, narcissist personality disorder. They don't change easily. Um, bipolar disorder, uh, not bipolar. Um, borderline border, uh, borderline personality disorders don't change easily. The, the real work has to be applied internally for those for those folks. And there is there's some of that. Now, now there's also some narcissism, nar- narcissistic personality disorder. There's some narcissism to believe that you know what? Out of the seven billion people in the world. Out of the 7,000 that are in, in my uh, uh, talent level in the whatever kind of pool in college, or I don't even know how many people play college basketball. I, I really don't know that number. But let's say out of um, the 70 people on an NFL team that I can be the number one across the other 32 teams as well, the best in the world, that thought of grandeur is in some ways necessary. It's, it's part of the ecosystem to think that you can do extraordinary things. Is it narcissism? Maybe. Is it high belief systems in your capabilities? Maybe. So it's tough to say where these lines are crossed. And it's very gray in some ways. And I also want to paint a picture. I want to make sure that I'm not painting a picture that there's just one way at the top. They are more similar than dissimilar. And there's a lot of variance. and there's no one way. There's no secrets, seven steps, tricks, hacks. There's no hacks. There, there are you know, they are more similar than dissimilar, but um, the variance of between them is is what you would imagine. I think
1: so. We could pull on the variances, and that would be a long, long conversation. Uh, but if you were to say similarities, where would you go with that? And look, I always say there's more than one way to eat a Reeses. Like generalizations can be very dangerous and, and tricky. But if we're pulling on that thread a little bit and finding out what are some similarities of those people that are at that edge as you talk about what would you say some similarities would be
0: complicated question and i know i know that you're sensitive to that so i'd say some of the similarities are um, it's like there's definitely three variables that we need to look through the lenses of genetics skill development and environmental conditions right and so some are freaks they're born that way in Forty-one inch vertical, eat cheeseburgers and have a you know an, an eight pack. Like
1: LeBron did not lift weights till he was like twenty-five.
0: <laughs> so like, there are freaks, you know, and and okay, so that's part of it. <laughs> okay, when you get those folks that do category number two well, skill development, and they're the hardest workers, you've got a franchise um, player, you got a franchise person, you got somebody that is really going to make others better. Because they they by far are naturally are highly gifted and they work their ass off to exploit or express, you know, what's inside of them. And so you can have low talent, moderate talent, if you will. You, and there's a line by one of the uh, quarterback coaches that I know that says, you got to um, to be in the NFL. You've got to be extraordinary just to suck. That's a cool thought. Just to get into the league, you've got to be flat out great. To suck in this environment, okay. So, does that make sense? Hundred percent. Isn't that cool though? And so, so then, skill development. Um, most people in in the in the leagues or or otherwise, they work pretty hard. Internally driven versus externally driven. Most are externally driven. Money, car, recognition, fame. Early on, until that becomes found, and. Um, once that's found it's pretty hollow and so then there's sometimes a shift that takes place you see after people get like the the recognition or fame or money that they thought that they should get so and, that drivers change yeah. at some point for folks as well
1: and as you're talking I'm thinking also about the majority of people that are listening to this are not pro pro athletes you've done some work in the corporate space as well mm-hmm. do you see similarities or differences of the people at the top of the
0: pyramid mm-hmm.
1: there and you know it, what are similarities and differences as you leave the playing field?
0: I love spending time with people that are really switched on and I I could care less what industry that they're in, whether it's an artist or CEO, an entrepreneur, mid-level manager that's hungry, you know, or an, an athlete that is, you know, definitely chipped in to go for it. And the similarities again across domains are more similar than varied, but they're inside. There is great variance. So I, I think that the, the greatest common denominator, unless that you're not a hard worker is hard work. <laughs> okay. So like hard work is really just part of it. So we don't talk very rarely. Do I ever talk to anybody who is some of the best in the world or the best in the world about working hard? That's a given. We talk much more about the systems of recovery, the art and science there, than we do about um, the relentless and uncommon relentless work ethic that they have. So we might talk about how to sharpen up the work ethic, deeper focus, greater awareness, become more sensitive as an instrument. But hard work is just kind of assumed.
1: So I want to shift a little bit. I think about goodness versus greatness and character. And I think... From my perspective, at least, a lot of times we'd like things to be all nice and neat and pretty and nice in a package. How do you think about someone being good? And when I say good, I'm I'm talking about the character funnel and how you think about them being great. And then the part of this that I'm really curious about is the potential darkness of greatness Mm -hmm. uh, and how that toggles or plays with goodness.
0: When you're talking about goodness, are you talking about wholesomeness? Or are you talking about average, better than average performance?
1: Yeah, I'm talking about more wholesome. Like, I'm not talking about good to character great. Character traits. Yeah, I'm talking about character mm-hmm. traits. Like, who am I away from? Who am I? Do I hold, hold the door for somebody? Do I say please and thank you? However, you define character. Because um, I think sometimes the message is hey, you know, do the right thing, be good. But then I'm just, I'll I'll give examples. Like, look, we see people in Hollywood right now being questioned on their character, right? We see athletes using performance enhancement drugs that have have reached the top of that pyramid. Uh, We have domestic violence issues. So I'm just curious how you think about character as it relates to greatness.
0: Very cool. And there's lots of ways to do extraordinary things and to climb up um, to the reaches of one's potential and some people will sell. Um, so uh, what was I trying to say there? Some people will sell out their character for extraordinary outcomes for more money, for more recognition, for better results. So I think that they don't always hang together, but they can. And most people I know are really good people highly driven and really good people. Now, are they quirky? Yeah, they're different. For sure, they're different. And that's also why they're extraordinary. So there's some sort of different lens that they see the world through. And But most people I know that are at the tip of the arrow, they're good, you know? And there are some that are not for sure. And they don't last very long because everybody has to sell their soul in some way to be around them. You know, it's like, God, it just feels, I haven't, I haven't met a coach yet that hasn't said, and even, even um, a business person that, that they all say, you know what, I should have traded that dude a long time ago. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I was held captive by his, his, um, his output, whether it's in business or entrepreneurship or, or, or sports. They choose
1: the talent over maybe the character in
0: that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's tricky you can develop both. And if both are important, both can get better, you know? And so ecosystems that that third variable that we're talking about, the environment ecosystem is really important. You know, you hear books about no BS rules or no a-hole rules or whatever, that totally cool. And that is another way of saying that is we want high character people. And so I know part of the mission for John Schneider and his team as the general manager, of the Seahawks is uh, high character guys. And, So they put a particular lens on it where they're looking for high character guys because it's just more fun to be around. (laughs) They tend to be less distracting to environments. So, uh, you know, that's how we think about it.
1: Cool. I want to go back to your story a little bit. So you've got these three wise men in your life that are mentoring you at Marymount. Um, How do they help you on your journey as you figure out what the next step is?
0: I don't think they did um, anything like directive or um, advice giving for me that that's not how they operated in my life. Matter of fact, it's an interesting thing. I, I love bringing them up. I think about them often. I'm not sure they would recognize the value other than me telling them the value that they had in my life. I don't think any one of them said, you know, Oh yeah, Gervais. Yeah. You know, we, we, we knew what we were doing. I don't think it was like that. I think that they were just great men. And they saw somebody that was interested in kind of what they had to say, more interested in something else surfing. And they just were teachers. They were great teachers.
1: How do you relate that back to your job now? So how do you, so you said, um, they don't, I'll just rephrase it. So I don't think they looked at it like that. They were just teachers and they were just helping, but I don't think they thought that they were giving me advice. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that as your job and what you do?
0: Yeah. I think you probably know that I don't like or I reserve advice. And it doesn't work for me when someone gives me advice. These three men in particular didn't. And they just saw something that was inside me. And they held me to that standard. And they happened. I think they were right. You know, like they just kind of hit that sweet spot. So I I loathe advice giving. You know, and people ask all the time, like, Hey, how do I do something in the field of sports psychology or this, that and the other? And I say, you know, I don't know, like I know what I did and I don't know enough about your unique experience. And so when we spend time and now I'm going to put my craft hat on as a sport and performance psychologist, like we need time. We need time to understand, to really understand with the highest regard what a person's unique journey is and how they've able to become. person they are today to deeply understand where they want to go and what the texture and tone and fabric of that will look like in the future and what they're confused by what they're clear about and it takes time it takes time i wish it didn't it is a journey of self-discovery first and then figuring out how to be grounded how to be authentic and layering on the mental skills that will help you get there faster so the first investment really is understanding your own psychological framework which is unique to you and your experiences and once that thing becomes more sturdy then mental skills being begin to really advance or accelerate um, the ability to learn and go for it more circumstances
1: so you do the deep work and then you lay on the mental skills inform everybody what those mental skills are that you have in the toolbox that you then share
0: with the clients that you work with mental skills like it's pretty mechanical right and the mental skills that are often published in research are goal setting, uh, arousal regulation, which is like, can you be calm and intense at the same time, deep focus, um, self-talk so, or self-confidence and imagery. Like those are kind of some of the basic ones. I don't know if I missed one there. And I think there's another one that we don't talk about yet and is not in the literature enough, but I think it's an important one, which is trust, self-trust. I think that's a skill and it's part of a framework But it's a skill to be able to trust yourself to say at a deep enough level, the right stuff to build confidence. So self-trust, I think, is a skill that doesn't, that is like this um, concept that doesn't get talked about enough.
1: Can you just unpack self-trust a little bit? So I know you're saying the research doesn't cover it, but how do you see it and how do you work with it in your work?
0: Well, yeah. Well, yeah. What does that mean? (laughs) The... The concept that I can trust myself to do difficult things, and I can trust that whatever comes on the other side, whether that is feedback that is easy to deal with, like winning, or feedback that's hard to deal with, like whatever. And so I trust myself to be able to adjust to whatever information is coming back to me. And success, and what's the um, the classic poem Uh, treat success and failure as the two imposters being the same. So that idea that it's just information feedback is really important, but sometimes failure mistakes or coming up short are harder to deal with than success. And so that's what I'm talking about there. And
1: I'd love for you to go into that and how that works for you in your practice and how you think about self-trust for yourself, not necessarily for your clients.
0: Yeah. So you got to earn it. You just got to do a lot of difficult things to earn the right, and have enough skill internal mental skill to to become aware of your inner dialogue this is me now like i've got to go do difficult things to say to myself i can do difficult things and when i do difficult things they are not pretty they're i'm at the edge of my capacity the edge of my skill the edge of what i know and that's wonderful though because i get this nice little kick up in arousal and adrenaline and all that stuff happens it feels wonderful then to have the mental skills that i've invested in for myself to be able to dampen them to harness them temper them in the right way so i can think clearly so i can be grounded and adjust to the unfolding unpredictable unknown that for me that's what it looks like but to earn the right to say i can do difficult things i got to do difficult things and have a, that as part of my body of work and when anybody does difficult things it ain't pretty it's it's hard and it's difficult to do and it doesn't mean that Um, things are going to turn out just the way you think they should or just the way I think they should so dealing with new information as new information has been an incredible accelerant for me personally and new information meaning success or failure or mistake or um, being fluent that I don't know. It's just it just gets a lot easier at some level. <laughs> at that level, I think it gets easier for me. And I'm not trying to say that I got it wired by any means. I'm saying I value doing difficult things where I look ugly. Okay, where it's not pretty.
1: What are the, what are some of those things?
0: Emotional vulnerability It begins there. It's not physical. Yeah, it used to be physical for me, and it's not that anymore. Uh, I, sometimes it doing things that are physically difficult are triggers or mechanisms in to expose thinking and expose the emotions that come from it so you know when your heart is pounding out of your chest because you're in an environment or terrain that is difficult and hard and i don't mean just like oh you know i could walk out the door of a i don't know hot yoga class that's hard but you're fine if you walk out the door. By by the way, you had to probably spend a lot of money to go to that class anyway. So life is probably okay if you're spending whatever number of dollars to go to the class. I'm talking about, like, in surfing, there's a thing called tombstoning. And I have such respect for these guys that are surfing 60, 70, 80-some foot waves right now and the conditions that they're putting themselves under. Ian Walsh, Kai Lenny, if you're not familiar with those names, there's legends in being watermen. And what that means is that they put themselves at great risk each time they go do the thing that they love. And there's a concept called tombstoning. When, if you're under long enough, if you don't have a life vest on that's going to bring it to the surface, if you're under long enough, you'll see somebody's board tombstone. And it's just that the tip of the board pops out and it's kind of floating across the surface. That means you're stuck underwater in some way. And I don't know if you've almost drowned, and I don't know if you've had that experience, but it is.
1: I'm rolling my eyes because I actually did when I was a kid, but I don't remember it, but I've been told about it. Mm. So like my eyes are going to the top of my head because I'm trying to think back. Like I know whose house it was at and I wonder, you know, you were talking about memory earlier and attach, and you, we talked about you seeing the sun as your parents were talking to you. And my head also went to this place of like, I wonder how much of that is truth and I wonder how much of that is created. Inside of yeah, us. yeah,
0: memory is not great. Yeah,
1: the science on memory is yeah, really
0: crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not very good. And and you know if you can if you create enough if you if somebody were to tell a lie and say it often and the vivid vivid <laughs> the vivid imagery that comes from it get, would get confusing to the truth, right? So we are not we are machine we are meaning making machines in some way, and so we have to just temper our memory. And so, so I appreciate that too. And sometimes like I'll say this to my friends all the time, like, is that how that happened? Do you remember it that way? I'll say, my parents are like, Mike, that's not how it happened. You were 12, not eight or whatever. It's like, really?
1: But isn't that fascinating too? The interpretation or the story that we tell ourselves and how we interpret events dictates how we look at those events And so the interpretation, there's amazing power in. And so, you know, I I think the interpretation is one of the things that I'm fascinated by. Like, how do you interpret
0: things, right? Uh, That's a psychological framework for me. The way that you interpret your own thoughts, other people's thoughts and actions, if if they share their thoughts, and events that take place. Like, how, how do you interpret them? That filter is really important. And if we think about this in an oversimplified way, the brain is like three pounds of silly putty that sits in the skull. Most amazing machine. It's not a machine. It's an organ. It's a tissue that is, we, we have no idea what, what's happening there. And it, it's the findings that are pouring out of research right now are amazing, <laughs> like just amazing. But what is governing that? And the field used to be split that the brain created the mind. And there's folks that are saying, no, no, no. The mind is this thing that governs the body, and there's a relationship between the two, um, like a, a freeway system that goes back and forth. So, what is it? We don't know. We don't know what it is. Some scientists are like neuroscientists are like, no, it's the brain is the is the thing, and this ghost in the machine. What are you talking about? Where's the mind? Where are your thoughts? Okay. And then, but if I look within, and I think if you, when you do the same, you'd say, no, there's, there's something else there. This concept of consciousness. Did I make it up? Did we make it up? Or is it real? I want to make it really simple. I have thoughts. I can choose thoughts once I'm aware of my thoughts and the thoughts that I have form, um, thought patterns and those thought patterns eventually turn into habits where I don't have to think about them so they can slip into non-consciousness. And once I have those in place, those are the building blocks for my framework. Who built it? Who built your framework? Your software, if you will, running the hardware of the brain? Who built it? I bet it wasn't a world-class coach. I bet I bet your mom and dad, as great as humans as they probably are. It's me. Yeah. And and your first coach that told you you look you don't look good in purple, <laughs> you know, or your first you know, one of your uncles that made fun of you, whatever. Like they, you know, your kid peers and kids that made fun of you, that's all part of it too now. So I'm not saying that we need to go back ever to become better. It is important to know the framework that we sit on so that we can adjust accordingly to have a sturdy, strong framework. And those filters are really important to, to upgrade. We upgrade the filters in our AC and our heating systems. We need to upgrade the filters that we have, that how we see the world.
1: So how do you constantly evolve how you're thinking about psychology or your philosophy or your framework? with what you've come to believe in. How do you toggle that?
0: It's not, it is not, nothing for me is set in stone, which the danger of that is it becomes flimsy, right? And so I have this thought, like I I know the alphabet and I know that there is probably a second, third, fourth alphabet, but the alphabet that I've chosen to understand, like I've got a pretty good way that I think I think about it. I know there's some hesitancy in there because and it's complicated. You know, the mind is really complicated. So I feel like um, what I know, I th- I have a good sense of that, but I'm also open for interpretation and upgrade at any any point. So I feel like I'm a beginner that has um, a, a body of knowledge and a body of experiences that are important, and what I haven't experienced yet is probably more important. So I'm open to upgrade and I'm hungry to upgrade and how do I do that? I get uncomfortable, meaning that I run to the edge of being emotionally vulnerable as much as I possibly can, which is not easy for me, at least. And then I try to be around really switched on people. And hence why I fired up probably the same thing, why you fired up a podcast, to be around conversations where people see things or say things just a little bit differently. And they're intriguing. And that's all part of the ecosystem, I think.
1: Yeah, I want to get your thoughts on something. So one of the things I struggle with, and I would imagine a lot of people struggle with, is we have all this knowledge now about optimal performance, sleep, nutrition, meditation, uh, you know, writing, reading, uh, exercise. (laughs) I find it a little overwhelming. It's like, okay, 20 minutes a day, can I meditate? An hour a day, can I exercise? Can I do that on eight hours of sleep? Am I journaling? Am I reading? Am I listening to a podcast? Uh, Oh, by the way, are you eating healthy? Um, And are you going to be home at night to see your kids? For me, digesting all of, we have so much information now. It's beautiful. It's like we've got this whole internet, whereas back in the day, we had to go and look up encyclopedias and really dig deep for that information. Now we have all the information, but I think a lot of people are struggling with how to apply it to them. What are your thoughts on all of that?
0: I think you're right, and I think we've adopted a model. This is one of the central treaties that I'm exploring in in a book I'm writing with with Coach Carroll is that we've got this model that we are operating from right now, and it's very American, what I'm about to say, and the model is we need to do more to be more. And I think there's some universality around that that is a bit more global than just the American-centric thought. But there was an industrial revolution that took place and our grandparents are great. Grandparents said, hey, listen, and they came home and they said, there's the machines are coming and they're taking our jobs. So you know what? I'll be damned if they're going to take my job. So my strategy is I'm just going to outwork it. I'm going to be precise. I'm going to be great. And no one's taking my job. So those are the ones that survived and figured out how to adjust in the industrial revolution. Some jobs were replaced and people were replaced. Um, so... So what ends up when I think what has happened over some generations is we've got this model right now that we need to do more to be more and it's broken. People are tired, exhausted. People are trying to become their very best by doing more. And it, it's the snake that's eating its tail. It doesn't really work well that way, I think. And, and so we need to flip that model on its head and talk about being more and let the doing flow from there. Being more grounded, being more present, being more here now, and allowing that being and groundedness to be the, um, uh, what's it called? the Like a, a, a lightning rod or a, a tuning fork. That's the word I'm looking for. A tuning fork to make decisions, to eat, to go home, to be in the conversation, to say I'm done with the conversation, whatever. Like to become the tuning fork, we need to be present to do it. So it's time to flip that model on its head and be more And let the doing flow from there.
1: Cool. And one of the things I also think often about is we all know adversity can be this great teacher, post-traumatic growth. Uh, You listen to successful, quote-unquote, successful people. They'll talk about how adversity helped shape them. So I'm not minimizing adversity. However, I can tell you often the best part of my day, and I love what I do, is when I come through that door and my two-year-old comes running up to me and says, daddy, daddy. You know, that to me... Is feeling alive. That to me is love. And that's incredible. And that, look, parenting has all kinds of adversity. I'm not minimizing how hard it is to be a parent because if anyone knows how to do that better, please email and call me. But like, I, I wonder if the messaging that gets told of you have to go through adversity to live a full life is missing something. Because, and I think about my life and I think like some of the things I've learned that have been tremendous for me have not been from adversity, but from feeling aliveness. So I would love to just hear you riff on that for a little bit.
0: Suffering is universal for people. And when we look at the most significant shapers of how humans behave and do and think, it's usually world religion. Um, religious figures, you know, Jesus, Muhammad, um, Gandhi, Confucius, Buddhism, and there's a threat of suffering in there. So in modern days, when we talk about adversity, it's, there's a longer conversation that's been happening, which is Jesus suffered. Look what happened to him. You know, um, Gandhi suffered. Look what happened to him. Buddha suffered. Look what happened to him. They, 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 they came through that with incredible wisdom, incredible insight. So that conversation's been around a long time. And we, in some ways, make it uh, modernized by saying that we need to have adversity. That's a little cleaner than saying suffering. So I, I would venture to say, i would just go a little deeper on that and say that there's something irreplaceable that happens when you get in touch with your own suffering. And that's not easy to do. Does it take getting kicked in the teeth or in the stomach, you know, publicly or um, financially or whatever? Maybe. That's not suffering. That's embarrassment. That's hardship in some kind of way. So I think that the deeper tone to that question is about um, suffering.
1: How do you define suffering? I mean,
0: again. Again words fall far below. It's, it's a little bit like saying, how do I define love? Well, it's a verb. Love is a verb. Doing things lovingly is important. Uh, suffering is the inner pain that taps into the separation that we all feel from each other, from ourselves, from whatever source is um, binds us. And so, suffering is a deep, deep pain that takes place for people. It's not embarrassment. It's far deeper than that. It's not loss or grief. It's different. And suffering is an anguish that is um, life changing. And some people get stuck in suffering and there's a clinical disorder for it. And some people use and feel that suffering and figure out how um, that becomes a universal truth and they embrace it and they accept it and they're not, they've basically pet that lion on its head and knowing that that lion can eat them. So the suffering is deep and I don't have a definition, you know, I'm sorting it out in some way right now with you, but if you felt it, you know it. And I, if you're not bullshitting yourself, you felt it.
1: (laughs) How about success? How would you define success?
0: Yeah. Success is pretty plain. You know, for me, it's, it is the expression of authenticity. And so Success is going for it. success is knowing that you've done everything you possibly can in the best possible way. It's having an alignment between your thoughts, words, and actions. And so what I just described, there's three functions that I just described to it. And the alignment piece is really important for success, but you've got to know what your thoughts, words, and actions are and how they're lining up for a particular aim in life and, and a, almost a mission, a purpose, if you will. But the effort towards it is also part of the equation. So even if you don't know (laughs) with great accuracy your thoughts and your words and your actions and why the hell we should line them up in any kind of way, the trying and attempting to become your very best and be your very best for other people, not just so that you're a stud, but so when you're more present and more grounded, more authentic for one reason, so that you can help others do the same. And that call for authenticity, I think the world needs that. In many ways right now, because we're inundated in the next generation and this generation, our generation inundated with highlight reels, Instagram, short clips on whatever Twitter, you know, look how great my life is snaps that the highlight reels are, uh, you know, they're cool, they're fun, but my life is better than yours. Look at my pictures is challenging.
1: It is interesting when you look at the suicide rates for our young people, and the, they're on—they're in those worlds. They're living in those worlds. Yeah, and,
0: and you, uh, your your kids are not this age yet, but bullying is a you know a twenty-hour phenomenon now. It's not just happening at school, and so the whole ecosystem that this generation is coming up with it is going to be different, and it is different and great in many ways, and it's challenging in others. So,
1: you have such a way with words. How much of your time do you spend writing and thinking about these things and trying to make sense of complicated, complex, um, nuanced words?
0: I don't write. Uh, I I think that I, I wish I did. I love. I have such regard for the muses of the world that have created amazing stickiness and and phrases and words and and dialogues that impact people but I I, that's not my thing like I wish I was better at it and I'm trying to write right now and I slog through it when I write and but I have a great appreciation for what words elicit and I think I listen (laughs) I listen to people and then I was like oh my god look how they stitched those phrases together and look at the response I had when so I'm I'm aware of words and I want to be better at them. And so that I thank you for that. You know, it's so I don't know where it comes from, but uh, I, I do value the accuracy in, of words for sure.
1: So you listen and then you play it back in your head and then there's some stickiness for you in your head when you play it back.
0: No. Okay. So let's, let me see if I can deconstruct it better. Is that when I'm, ch- I, there's, there's like two parts when I'm ch- working to choose or find the right word there's like a calibration of, is that accurately representing what's inside of me? And you care yeah. deeply about that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that that's it. Really. I think that for me, um, being able to authentically express yourself sounds a little cheesy, but that's it. Like what's happening inside me and how well can I express that? Whether it's in a deep committed, not committed in, in a deep conversation with somebody, whether, it's hard or easy, like that's what it's about. Really, that's the human exchange of the need and calling for relationships. Or it's being able to describe in the best possible way, the invisible and how the invisible works.
1: But you know, one of your best strengths, and I'm, I'm making the assumption here, and it's maybe an assumption others have made, that the work that you do on your podcast is similar stylistically to the work that you do when you don't have the microphone on, is
0: that? Yes and no. Yeah. There's some framework stuff there. I, you know, no one taught me how to hold a microphone and ask questions. Like I'm not an interviewer, but I'm curious. And so I think that that's what comes out in the podcast. Like I'm just curious and I feel really fortunate to have these amazing people that I get to have conversations with and they are switched on and curious as well. So in like when there's no microphone on, I'm very much a Rogerian based Um, clinician. So explain that to people. Carl Rogers, right. Was this incredible human and he had some very core tenets, and he was a, one of the founding fathers um, or most impactful, I should say for me um, psychologist. And so I was trained in a Rogerian approach in, and I'll add one texture to that and I'll get to the principles. The the texture is that uh, notwithstanding the rigors of uh, the clinical psychology. Okay, so Carl Rogers is counseling, we're counseling based, and there's a whole different tone to cognitive behavioral and clinical training uh, that, that was part of my ecosystem. But Carl Rogers, he had two basic principles. And they're met by they they fuse together through a high regard for the other person with And understanding and insight that that person across the way, that they hold all of their answers. So having an incredible high regard for the person and that they hold the answers for themselves. So that's essentially where it comes from. So I got to figure that out. I got to figure out like, okay, if I have high regard for you, you have your answers. How do we get that to come forward? And what, what are those ways? I don't have your answers. I'm not giving advice.
1: Yeah, but one of the things that I think you do is you create distinctions on vocabulary to make sure we're at least speaking the same language. Yeah,
0: calibration is important, right? Really important. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I'm curious, is there anything that you do from a habit standpoint to intentionally set your mind uh, on a daily basis?
0: Yeah, I've got a a couple things I do in the morning just to prime things up. Um, uh, There's no rigidity about this to me, but I find them to be a nice little calibration and it wakes up particular parts of the brain. Uh, There's four things that I like to do in the morning before I even get out of bed. And the first thing is I just take one breath and maybe that one breath turns into four, five, six, seven, whatever. It's a small little hit, if you will, of um, sending a, a signal to my brain that I don't need to be anxious. I don't need to be anything other than right here. A long exhale has been paired with safety. So before I switch on, I want to make sure I'm grounded and I'm clear, and I'm just clearing the mechanism the best way I can, brain and mind. So one deep breath, for sure. The second is a, a second step is a thought of gratitude. And so I just light up the part of my brain around gratitude, which precedes joy and happiness. And that thought of gratitude, there's nothing more complicated than imagining something that you're grateful for. It could be $5 in your pocket. It could be eyesight. It could be anything, you know, the, the roof over your head but feel it. So think it is one thing, feel it's another. And so just making sure I snap those two together the best way or fuse them in the best way. And then the third is uh, I work to have an intention. And that's a fancy phrase, almost a mystic kind of voodoo thing, but it's not meant to be that. An intention is concretely how I want to show up. So I knew we were going to have this conversation. So how do I want to show up at this conversation?
1: So can you give insight into how you thought about that this morning?
0: Yeah, just put a snapshot in my mind about like, what is it like inside of me when we're having this conversation? And then I'll do those for whatever events I know that I have coming up for the day. So quick little snaps of how do I want to be? And that helps like to calibrate back to the core values that are and the core principles that are hopefully guiding my thoughts, words, and actions. And if I can have an intention of lining those things up in this concrete conversation that we're going to have today, then then I'm doing right by me. And so that I do just take a quick little moment on that. And then I take my, my, pull my sheets off, put my feet on the ground and just take a moment to feel where my feet are. That's it. 60 seconds, 90 seconds, sometimes three minutes, whatever. And that just is a priming of my mind and brain Get me going. Do you still surf? Mm -hmm. Not as much as I'd like to, you know, there's a different rhythm in my life for sure, but um, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'd love to close by you sort of closing the loop we were using sort of the sports psychology journey for yourself, and this usually happens when we do podcasts because to me it's like, all right, well, that's just a starting place. But the beauty of the podcast, which is what I love about it, is we take it wherever it takes us. Uh, But can you close that loop and give us sort of bullet points on um, your journey, uh, education-wise or – you know, the, the steps along the way. And the reason I'm so curious about this is I think we're all at different parts in our journey and not to say that your journey is the way that everybody should go, I hope uh, but, but it's, it's helpful for people to learn from others that have gone on a similar path so that they can figure out, all right, where am I on my path? Where can I shift? Where can I adjust? Um, and I think for me, at least one of, when I first graduated from you know, my master's in sports psych, the first thing I did was reach out to anyone who had talked to me that had been on that path. Not to say that I should go down that path, but honestly, the biggest takeaway for me was that they're human. So these are the people that in some ways were where I wanted to go. And being able to talk to them and have questions and listen to them really helped me realize that, well, I can, I can do that. So I think there's probably some young person that's listening to this conversation that might listen to your podcast and for them to hear where your journey uh, has been is helpful for them to at least humanize it. Um, and so that's what I think the value is.
0: Major headings and a few subheadings in, in the chapters of my life would be I uh, grew up on a farm, learned how to, from a young age, be connected to the environment. And it wasn't easy. It was, there was some hardness to that. A very loving family that um, wanted the best for each other. And they they moved out into from the city to the farm to create uh, just the right family structure that they always had in their head and their heart. And so chopping wood by age eight to feed our, to to heat our home, like there was some tough stuff that you have to do on a farm. Okay, and no small violins in my world. <laughs> like that's just the mechanics of it. Eventually, my dad moved into a corporate life, and we moved to California. And when we moved to California, what ended up taking place there is there was um, uh, an integration that I had to figure out. So we moved schools mid school, and I had to figure out how to integrate. And I was a hick hillbilly moving to the city. So that you can imagine some of that wasn't easy.
1: East coast, West coast too. It's, That's not, right. like, it's yeah. not like you're coming from Virginia, moving to Washington, DC or Richmond or, you know,
0: any of those. That's right. Yeah. There, uh, there's different cultures. Mm. For sure there was. And I didn't fit in. I didn't have the right clothes. I didn't have the right language, you know, like it was totally different. So then what ended up happening is my, uh, my parents moved again in midstream and we moved down to Southern California. And, I remember it was the first, uh, both instances, I've been in more fits fights than I'd like to talk about. And it's the, the the expression of violence and the act of violence. I don't, I'm not condoning it by any means, but I figured some stuff out about myself. There's a moment in time, and I don't wish violence on anyone, period. And there was a moment in time in each of these that I'm conjuring up in my head right now that I either would, I'm going to sit down and when I say sit down, I'm talking about stand up for myself, sit down, drop my hips and like do a violent act with another person or run.
1: Anger versus scared.
0: Yeah. And it's commitment. It's, there's a space of hesitation. Too much hesitation gets people hurt. Too much commitment can get people hurt too. So there's a space in between and that space in between the spaces in between the spaces in between like that thought is so real. And I wish that everybody has as many opportunities to know the difference between um, what they want to fight for, and what they won't fight for. So that ends up being a a small little chapter in my life in a couple different uh, cities. And I didn't know I was an anxious kid that had, um, I'd say, a punk attitude that was super intense, a little bit bored with the world. And uh, as soon as something got triggered, I used frustration, anger were to you, sort it out. Were
1: your mom and dad either of them like that?
0: Uh, my dad, yeah, like for sure. M- mom more on the codependent loving side, and you know, dad more on the aggressive alpha male side. Um, and so, I, I have, I didn't learn it, but I think it's genetic. Uh, it's in there. I had to unlearn it for sure. And so,
1: and I'm just curious for you in those moments of, I'm gonna say anger. I don't know if they're rage, but the moments where you chose to fight,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: what did that feel like for you?
0: It's going to sound awful, but there's a, um, incredible cascade of neurochemistry that takes place in those moments of real fear, real threat, real challenge. That also is an incredible liveness and you can find it on the edge of a, 20, 30 foot wave, 15 foot with six foot wave if you're, or two foot wave if you're not good at it. Like right at the edge, there's this neurochemistry that takes place. So it can become very confusing for young kids and young people. That fear mixed with adrenaline it can be wonderful. And not, but never, I want to be really good, never at the cost of another person's well being. And that's, that's the wrong part for me about the violence that I experienced. There was no reason to fight other than I was a scared kid and and I think another kid across the way wanted to be a punk or I offended them in some way. So this is young kid stuff trying to figure it out. But my so my last fistfight I was way too old. And I my came home and my wife was like what you know just this disgust when she looked me in the eyes and was like what are you doing? And that was it. Done. My my um I was done. It was um, a watershed experience for me, and one of my mentors like walked me through like what was happening. We really deconstructed that, and so from that moment, um, it was I was completely changed the way that I orientate myself with anxiety and anger and frustration and relationships with other people. So why am I talking about this? I don't know. I mean, it was a, important markers in my life, and then the the next thing that took place is that uh, I almost didn't get out of high school. And so my parents were like, they very, my mom was very, very clear. Like you have a choice to make that choice took over. And I fell in love with the, trying to sort out how this inner experience for humans work and I love it and it's great. And it's challenging.
1: It's an amazing thing that it was relatively early that you found, I'm going to say your calling that, that might be too strong of a word, but something that you were extremely passionate about and you threw yourself into it. Uh, very cool. I want to close by just thanking you, uh, before we turn the mics on, I, I thank you. Um, Your podcast is a big part of the reason why I'm even standing in front of you recording. So cool! Yeah, I mean, like, like uh, I love your podcast. It's awesome. Thank you. Uh, So I'm gonna obviously let you plug that, but I just want to thank you for that, and also just I think you're in some ways helping me sharpen my axe, sharpen my sword, whatever you want to call it, because every time I'm listening, whether you want to or not, you're getting into your craft, which is asking great questions. And when you listen to your podcast, or when I listen to your podcast, you can hear you pulling on threads and, and going deeper. And um, as somebody who loves to just give people answers, because I am, I am like, if I can help you, I'm going to, like literally... Uh, we took a little break between the podcast. There's a athlete that I've worked with who's now graduating college and he's trying to get a job. And he looked on LinkedIn and saw that I knew someone. And like I am a connector. That's what I love doing, probably more than anything. People that know me know that that's me. And I think sometimes that does not serve the person that's on the other side of the the aisle for me or the other the other chair. So um, when I listen to your podcast. I'm not you, you're not me, I have my style, you have your style, but I think it helps me create some space. Very cool, um, that's which, fun. Which is super
0: cool. Yeah, thank you, mate.
1: So uh, tell everyone where they can find the podcast, tell everyone what you're up to, uh, and where they can find you on social media.
0: Brilliant. Okay, so uh, Coach Carroll, the head coach of the Seattle Se- uh, Seahawks, and I have built a joint venture, and that's called Compete to Create. And you can find that on Compete to create.net It's a billboard Really. Um the description of the business is we took his intellectual property and my intellectual property, his is about how to switch on cultures and cultures that help people find their best. And my IP, if you will, a process or a way is about helping people condition and train their minds for this radical journey of self-discovery to become their best as well. So we put our two heads together and what we've been doing together up the Seattle Seahawks, we wrote on the back of a napkin, basically, a curriculum. And then um that has now come through many iterations. We've gone from training twelve people outside of the corp- outside of the sport world in a corporate environment, twelve people to thirty thousand people at eight hours a person, and we've done it by through technology. We've trained Olympians and sports psychologists on our methods and approach, and they are ca- cascading in-person trainings. And we've also got a digital. We've also got a digital solution where um, you can basically sign up inside of an, an enterprise business, large corporation. You can be trained on a four-week course. So it's, we love it. We're having so much fun doing it. And so that's uh, that's kind of where a, a, a lot of my energy is right now. I've got a small boutique um, sports psychology or performance psychology service here in Los Angeles. And I uh, see two clients a month. And that's that's what that looks like. And then the third part is finding mastery and um, other um, projects that I'm part of. I'll share one project that I'm part of. But finding mastery, you can find finding mastery the uh, same place that you're finding your podcast. Um, iTunes is certainly one of them. And then findingmastery.net is uh, the website. Uh, the website. So thank you for allowing that. And then this last project that I'm working on. So like Felix Baumgartner jumped out of space, the Red Bull Stratos project, extremely important part of my journey with Red Bull and um, Felix. And then Luke Aikens jumped from a plane at 25,000 feet without a parachute into a net that he and his team built that was 16 stories tall. That's another type of project. And the one I'm working with right now, it's a woman named Leah Ditton. And this is not, this is all public. It's perfectly fine for me to talk about that. She is going to row from San Francisco. I'm sorry, from Japan to San Francisco. By herself, solo row.
1: What do you mean by row? Just that. Like a kayak? Yeah, like
0: a, yeah, it looks like a dinghy, (laughs) you know, and she's going to row by herself. No no guide boat, trail boat. How long will that take? Well, it depends on the currents. No woman has ever made it. So a
1: man has made it?
0: Yeah, two. Okay. Yeah, and no woman's ever made it. And the journey is somewhere between four months and six months, every day rowing, somewhere between 12 and 14 hours a day. And complete self-reliance complete isolation so that's the project super dangerous and um so we follow along on that <laughs> perfectly
1: <laughs> yeah. uh and twitter where, where social media right?
0: okay twitter at michael gervais g-e-r-v-a-i-s instagram is at finding mastery you can also i'm also on instagram as well at michael gervais linkedin michael gervais as well and is there anything else i think that's kind of it facebook Oh, yeah. uh, Facebook, we got a Finding Mastery tribe. So if you like the podcast, we built a a little tribe area where people are, are supporting each other to become better, you know, to support each other and challenge each other on the path of mastery. So that is, it's wonderful. So Facebook, look up Finding Mastery there
1: awesome and my twitter's at brian levinson instagram intentional underscore performers mike thank you so much for your time really appreciate it this has been a lot of fun for me and i know our listeners will enjoy it as well
0: i appreciate being part of this conversation and your community and you asked great questions oh that means a lot they were cool that
1: really means a lot that's like the best compliment i've got on my sticky note it literally says stay curious at the top so hopefully i did that um so thank you for your time and hopefully we'll chat soon
0: Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. A couple things I do in the morning just to prime things up. Um, uh, there's no rigidity about this to me, but I find them to be a nice little calibration and it wakes up particular parts of the brain. Uh, the, there's four things that I like to do in the morning before I even get out of bed. And the first thing is I just take one breath and maybe that one breath turns into four, five, six, seven, whatever. It's a small little hit, if you will of um, sending a a signal to my brain that I don't need to be anxious. I don't need to be anything other than right here. A long exhale has been paired with safety. So before I switch on, I wanna make sure I'm grounded and I'm clear and I'm just clearing the mechanism the best way I can, brain and mind. So one deep breath for sure. The second second step is a thought of gratitude. And so I just light up the part of my brain around gratitude which precedes joy and happiness. And that thought of gratitude, there's nothing more complicated than imagining something that you're grateful for. It could be $5 in your pocket. It could be eyesight. It could be anything, you know, the, the roof over your head, but feel it. So think it is one thing, feel it's another. And so just making sure I snap those two together the best way or fuse them in the best way. And then the third is uh, I work to have an intention and that's a fancy phrase, almost a mystic kind of voodoo thing, but it's not meant to be that. An attention is concretely how I want to show up. So I knew we were going to have this conversation. So how do I want to show up in this conversation? Put a snapshot in my mind about like, what is it like inside of me when we're having this conversation? And then I'll do those for whatever events I know that I have coming up for the day. So quick little snaps of how do I want to be? And that helps like to calibrate back to the core values that are and the core principles that are hopefully guiding my thoughts words and actions and if I can have an intention of lining those things up in this concrete conversation that we're going to have today then that I'm doing right by me and so that I do just take a quick little moment on that and then I take my, my pull my sheets off put my feet on the ground and just take a moment to feel where my feet are that's it 60 seconds, 90 seconds, sometimes three minutes, whatever. And that just is a priming of my mind and brain to get me going.